just a quick word from us here at World of Wally. Um, we are always looking for support from our listeners to help continue our purpose, continue our drive, continue our mission. Uh, here at World of Wally, we strive to provide top-notch, compelling content that appeals to all ages and backgrounds. We do approach the podcast as a vehicle to deliver this information in a way that everyone, even the common man or common woman, feels that content speaks directly to them. We can only continue to provide thought-provoking and engaging conversations and guests with your help and your support. World of Wally is nothing without you, the listener, and your support. Thank you from all of us here at World of Wally. And if you want to become part of our journey here as this project continues, uh, find out more at our Patreon link uh, at www.patreon.com front slash world of Wally. Uh, you also will be able to find it in the episode notes of each episode throughout season two. Like I said, guys, we couldn't do it without you. We don't want to do it without you. So anything you can do to help, we appreciate it. And as always, guys, Wally out. Alright guys, glad to have you back for another episode today here's Season 2 of World of Wally. Uh, my guest today is going to be Mr. Jack O'Halloran. I had an opportunity to sit down with him and we had a delightful conversation on the telephone and he uh, educated me on a lot of things. He was able to tell me some real American history, some stuff that you'd think about in a spy novel or a crime novel or, or some Hollywood script that had been fabricated, but this is actually true to life. This is actual events that happened. He put it all in a book called Family Legacy, and it's absolutely amazing. Now, Jack O'Halloran is a name that might not jump off the page at many of our younger listeners, and not even maybe some of our older listeners. Now, like I said, my first uh, introduction to Mr. Jack O'Halloran was the original Superman franchise. He appeared in Superman 1 and Superman 2 alongside uh, Christopher Reeves. Now, he's had quite a few other things that went on in his life well before well well before his acting career for example he was a former professional boxer he fought out of boston massachusetts he fought all types of people when he was in california he, he held the uh california state heavyweight championship in 1972 and 1973 he had bouts against heavyweight uh former heavyweight champions or at this point it would have been future heavyweight champions george foreman and ken norton of course he lost to both of those guys he did have a fight uh, he was on a collision course with the late, great Muhammad Ali. And like I said, a, a loss that he took, even though he avenged the loss with a knockout in the rematch, um, he, th those two paths never crossed because of that. 
he goes by a couple of names. He goes by the Giant. He also went by Irish Jack O'Halloran. Um, the Giant is a simple nickname because he's six foot six inches tall, so you can see where they got that from. He had, um, besides the boxing career, he was, like I said, he went to uh, Western Kentucky, University of Western Kentucky, Hilltopper. He, um, he played basketball, and like I said, that's when he decided he kind of got the itch to get into boxing. Um, some some crazy facts and statistics about him, uh, some trivia of sorts. Um, in Superman, in the Superman movies one and two, he did not speak. He was a mute character. That was his idea that he went to the producers and the director and, and said, "Hey, we need to make this character a mute." So that's how it stuck. They liked the idea. They went with it. Uh, he says that the reaction he gets most often from Superman fans when they meet him is, my God, he can talk. And that's the funniest thing because offset before we get started with the interview, I actually told him, I said, you know, it's you have an amazing speaking voice. And I said that I would have loved to have heard it, you know, in Superman. Um, he had so many Hollywood hits that he was involved in there that you had an opportunity to... Um, you know, even though he, like I said, he got the opportunity to star in quite a few things along quite a few people. Um, he did have uh, roles in Dragnet in 1987. Like I said, he was in both Superman movies, one and two. Uh, he did not appear in the third one of that trilogy. He was in films like Farewell, My Lovely, 1975 with Mr. Robert Mitchum. He was in King Kong. A uh, little trivia here for you on that. King Kong, he is the first spoken voice you hear in that movie. He's the foreman that's, that actually says the very first line in the movie King Kong that, in 1976. Like I said, he was in Superman 1 and 2. That was 1978-1980. He was in the Baltimore Bullet also in 1980. He was in Hero and the Terror in 1988. And like I said earlier, he was in Dragnet in 1987. And like I said, that would have been an awesome career. That would have been something to hang your hat on. You were a professional boxer. Uh, you, you had a successful career. I mean, you had a record of 34, 21, and 2 with 17 knockouts. That's that's something to hang your hat on. But then he got into acting, and you know, act, he had a prolific acting career that's still going on to this day. That would have been something to hang your hat on also. Two different, two totally different styles, two different lifestyles that he lived. But then there's two other stories. He decided he wanted to put his previous experiences with his family, and I use the term family because this is it's fixing to be a mafia or a mob reference. Um, he wanted to put that down on paper, and that is the novel that he actually has out now. It's called Family Legacy. You need to check that out. We talk about that during the interview, and at the, at the end and in the episode notes, I'm going to have how you're able to achieve or acquire that book. And then, like I said, the... Um, so there's two other lifestyles. There's that, the where he grew up, uh, you know, how he grew up, what made him the man he is today. There's the boxing career. There's the acting career. Now he's an accomplished author. So a little quick synopsis of kind of what the book is about. And I wanted to do this in his own words. So, Mr. Jack O'Halloran. I am Jack O'Halloran, the son of Albert Anastasia. I have written a book, Family Legacy. In Family Legacy, I am telling the story of organized crime. I am telling this story from the inside out, not to be confused with previous books or movies that tell the story from the outside looking in. All right, I wanted to get that in there because he 
that voice and that description is just amazing. Um, the kind of the synopsis of the book uh, it talks about two distinct families. It talks about his family, his adopted family, and then it talks about one of the most prolific families in the world or in world history as it pertains to the U.S. history, the, the presidency and such as that. The, here's here's the kind of the snapshot of what's going on here. In Family Legacy, Jack Pagano has always felt that he is different, smart and physically talented. The normal pursuits of youth, though, women and sports, they always came a little too easy to him and left him very unfulfilled. At age 17, Jack is eager to leave high school and begin his college career. But the schooling that lies ahead of him is a far different variety than he could have ever imagined. A gentleman named Albert Astacio, which is the notorious leader of Murder Incorporated, appears and claims Pagano as his son. But before Jack can make heads nor tails of his newfound father, Anastasio is gunned down at a barber shop near the Park Sheraton Hotel. Under the tutelage of his late father's associates, Meyer Lansky and Frank Costello, Jack enters a world where crime and politics, money and murder, and the American way of life are all but a hand's breadth apart and inexplicably linked together. At the same time, there's another father grooming his son to further his plans, Joseph Kennedy, the patriarch of which will become America's ruling dynasty, has set his sights on the White House, and with the help of some old friends in Chicago, his son, also named Jack, will rise to power. Guys, that's that's real American history. That's that's not stuff he made up. This these are actual real people that he's talking about in this novel, and it he paints a picture in this novel of the way it really happened not the way some of the history books read or textbooks that we we had back when i was in school but real history the way it played out so we're going to definitely we'll definitely be talking about that during the interview and after the break um just a few more things i want to run by with you real quick um he states that one of the things that he talked about offset with me that actually i found in some in some uh research I did. He said he states that fans often confuse him with the, the late, great, amazing Richard Keel due to the similarity in their celebrated roles, height, and facial features. Funny twist on that, he actually was considered, I'm talking about Jack, was considered to play the role of Jaws in The Spy Who Loved Me in 1977 before the aforementioned Robert Keel got the part. Had he gotten that role, it would have been the first of two times that he would have played a mute. Of course, like we talked about earlier, he played a mute in Superman 2. Like I said, he was a boxing uh, contender forever. He displayed superhuman strength in box office films, notably Superman 2, and as the henchman in others, for example, in his very first role, Farewell My Lovely with Robert Mitchum. Guys, I'm telling you, when I sat down with this guy and we started talking, I could have talked to him for hours. I could not believe the wealth of knowledge this guy had. We talked about quite a bit of stuff offset. We talked about quite a bit of stuff that was recorded. If I would have put down and recorded everything we talked about, it, it would have had been a whole month's worth of episodes. Uh, just a truly amazing individual. And guys, if y'all hang in there, after the break, I will have our guest, Mr. Jack O'Halloran. So hang in there, guys. We'll be back after the break. Hey, guys. This is William here at World of Wally. Just want to talk about a partner that we picked up for season two 
It's FNX Fit. They are a nutrition and supplement company. Uh, everything that they produce is made in the USA. So we are made in the USA proud here at World of Wally. So we wanted to partner with these guys. You will be able to go to the link that will be in the episode description. Um, it's fnx.grsm.io front slash World of Wally. And you'll be able to use this discount code fnx 7 d FQ at checkout. And by doing that and by using that exclusive link, you're going to receive 15% off your purchase. And you can reuse that link and that code to get that deal every time you visit the site. And remember, guys, World of Wally appreciates their listeners, appreciates their fans, appreciates their followers and their subscribers. And that's why we partnered with these guys because they have the same outlook that we do. It's all about helping people. All right, guys, back from the break, and as promised, our guest today, Mr. Jack O'Halloran. How are you doing today, Jack? I'm doing the best I can with it. Let me get away with uh, I did. I did see uh, on social media the other day that you just recently had a birthday, so happy belated birthday. Thank you kindly. All right, let's, let's jump right in because you, you got quite a bit. Uh, we were talking offset about the life that you've had. You, you've had a Hollywood life uh, and um, to, the, to the max because uh, a lot of the stuff that you did in your past um, and then, of course, some stuff that you're working on now, uh, a book, that uh, a series of books that you're working on. We're going to talk about that in just a minute. Um, a lot, some things that some of our listeners might not know, of course, some of our listeners that are around my age remember you when you were making movies or you were part of the Superman franchise um, you also were um, in Dragnet um, I also found out that you were in King Kong which the, I'm talking about the 70 what was it 74 version 76 76 1976 now I'm going to go back and watch that because I don't either I'm getting old and I don't remember it or I just didn't spot you in it now what what character did you actually play in the King Kong Played a guy named Joe Perko. Actually, I said the very first words in the movie. Joe Perko. The very beginning of the film. Yeah, uh, Joe Perko was foreman of the oil crew. Well, I made the mistake of getting popcorn at that time, and I missed it, so I'm definitely going to go back and watch it now. <laughs> All right, so like I said, you on Dragnet, and of course, Superman. A lot of folks know you. You're iconic with the Superman franchise. Um, one quick question for you on that. I don't want to really dwell on that because, like I said, I want people to know really what you've got going on right now. We are going to touch on a little of this, but what was it like on that set? Because you guys, you know, super uh, hero movies now are commonplace, but back then you guys were forerunners. I mean, you were you were the MCU before it was the MCU. You know, y'all were, of course, that's a, a DC comic uh, brand is Superman. So what was it like? I mean, did you... At that time, did you really understand kind of what you were setting, uh, you know, the course of movies for? Yeah, you know, I, uh, you got to understand, Superman was the first was the first American superhero, you know. And uh, when I first got the script, I was doing a picture with uh, Gene Hackman down in Spain called March or Die, and they. Uh, sent me down a script and Hackman and I went up to London to visit with uh, Richard Donner and uh, and go through the whole thing and you know it, it was uh, a terrific idea and I, and I loved the character because 
I, Jackie Gleason was a friend of mine, and he did a picture called uh, Gigo that he won an Oscar for playing a deaf, dumb, mute guy. And I said, if I ever got an opportunity to play somebody where I was using facial and body expression, I was going to embrace it and do it. And, uh, and Nan was a perfect character because General Zod was a, was a vicious general and Sarah was a man-eater and somebody had to relate to the kids because it was a, a children audience, uh, basically, that we were adhering to. And uh, so I played this big brutish guy like a child. You know, learning how to work my eyes and, and very childish mannerisms, and it, and, it, and it worked out pretty well. It was uh, it was good. Now, what what were the actual years, uh, the 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 release dates on the Superman franchise? What what were the dates of those? Because well, the first one I believe came out in seventy eight, and the second one came out in eighty. In nineteen eighty, I, I, I thought Superman two came out in eighty because I can remember. Being in the theater, um, I was, let's say in 1980, I would have been like 10 years old and just absolutely mesmerized by the movie itself. And I'm going to be honest with you, at that point... They were actually very, very good films. At that point, you were one of the most menacing characters I had ever witnessed on the movie screen. Like, you played the part to perfection. So, well, you know, I, I used to have a lot of people come up to me at Comic Cons and stuff. And the first, when I first, the first Comic Con I ever did, people come up to me and say, Oh my heavens, you can really talk? You know, <laughs> I, I used to get a kick out of it. And, and, and then people would come up to me and say, Boy, your character scared the death out of me, but I love the character so much. Because it, it was like a child manners and that people related it to it. And it, was a, it worked out really well. I mean, we had a good time doing the film and. It was, uh, Richard Donner was a great director. I mean, he was just, it's sad. If you ever never seen the Donner cut, you should, you should look at that. Okay. I certainly will. Now, would you would consider, I mean, you might not consider it. You've done quite a few things. You've got quite a few credits, but the Superman movie that would you, that you feel like that launched you or your acting career? I, you know, the first film I ever did was a great film, The Farewell, My Lovely, with Robert Mitchum. It, uh, if you have never seen that, you should look it up. It's, uh, I saw that on the credits, excellent. and I saw Robert Mitchum starred in it, and I've, I never saw anything that Robert Mitchum was in that was not amazing. Oh, he was, he was, he, he was brilliant. He was a, a dear, dear friend, and he helped me tremendously in the industry. And he was... Uh, Robert was like a father. He and I got on very, very well. Because uh, that was the first thing I ever did. He made sure that, you know, when I when I, when I did the screen test for it, when they asked me to do a screen test for it, and he saw the screen test, he said, it's either him or I don't do the movie. So uh, I blame it all on him. Okay. <laughs> uh, now, um, I don't know. I'm, uh, we can talk about just a second kind of how you were discovered, you know, as an actor. Uh, but let's jump back a little bit b- before your acting days. You were a pretty impressive boxer, also. I mean, I, I pulled up yeah, some information I, I was, on uh, you that was. I, I first played professional football, and I was uh, and I left, it. so I could never box amateur. I just had to go into the pros because right. I was like 23 years old, and they uh, they uh, in those days you, you couldn't 
do amateur and professional together like you can today. Right. So, uh, you know, I'm, I think I'm one of 10 heavyweights in the history of boxing that ever got to be in the top 10 heavyweight rankings uh, without boxing amateur, which is kind of cool. You know, that but is uh, yeah, cool. I had some great fights and um, a great competition. And I, it's just that I, I was my own worst enemy. I, well, I, first of all, I had a disease called acromegaly, which is a tumor of the pituitary, which, which uh, they told me I shouldn't even be boxing at all. But I just didn't pay any much attention to that. Okay. And I, you know, it's, uh, and it was like a day job for me because I was involved in other things from um, another world. And, uh, Right. So, but it worked out well. We're going to talk about I, that I, in I, just a minute. Yeah, I had a very good talent. Yeah, don't give that away because we're fixing to talk about that in just a minute, that other world you're talking about. Now, you said you played professional football. Now, you, you came out of, of uh, Western Kentucky, I believe it was. Yeah. Western Kentucky. Yeah. What franchise? And, I, what? and in, those days, in those days, you weren't allowed to play pro ball until your class graduated okay. from college. They didn't have what they call hardship cases like today where – you know, guys that are freshman year and boom, they're running right into the pros. Right. You couldn't do that back when I played ball. So they had like a, a semi-pro league where it was like a farm team for professionals because I the Jets grabbed me right away and 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 I and I played on this this uh, this, this semi-pro league for you know a couple of years with people like Jimmy Christie and Tim Christie and you know it was a uh, big Christie and. There are a lot of great ball players that did the same thing until they could play in the pros. So, but you were labeled a professional athlete. And, uh, right. and then when I was eligible to play, I wanted to go down and play with the Eagles because I had a lot of friends down there. And, uh, and they, they had a great team And, and until they got this coach, Joe Q. Harrick, and he traded a whole championship football team. So, And Ali had just won the title. So I said to some friends of mine, you know, I could beat that guy. <laughs> and they... Uh, they put me in the gym, and there you go. Right, boxing became a career. You, you made the move to boxing. You started your career sixteen and zero. You were a former California State heavyweight champion, and then, um, of course, you retired from that in nineteen seventy four officially. Right, yep. nineteen seventy four is when you hung it up, yep. and that's when you kind of made the move to acting. Now. I read I read an article that said you were on a collision course with Muhammad Ali, but then you had a little setback. You you uh, had a match, or you had a, a yeah. You were in a boxing match with a guy that you should have beat, but you didn't. And then something about you had a rematch with him, and you knocked the guy out. But at that point, you know Muhammad Ali was kind of off the radar at that point. Um, I can't. Well, even... I was well, I was supposed to fight him way before that. I yeah. mean, we were. Just I was supposed just to fight him when I, when I fought Norton, and right. uh, he he fought Ken Norton instead because Norton's people had a ton of money, and they went to Chicago, and gave a lot of money to Herbert Muhammad, and and Ali got the Norton fight. Ali and I were signed to fight in San Diego, and it just it didn't happen. Just he didn't happen. called me, apologized. And, yeah, we were pretty good friends. And, oh, yeah. And then I, I was supposed to fight him in Australia, and then I was supposed to fight him. There were four different times we were, we were talking about fighting. So Yeah, I didn't even didn't get a chance. Out. I didn't get a chance to mention it. You also had matches against Ken Norton Sr. and George Foreman, which are two pretty good boxers. Norton I gave a heck of a beating to, and they, I mean, they, it was a hometown deal that boy. I mean, I... And it was, again, you know, it was, they called me up a week before the fight, 
I was in New Jersey and, uh, and I was taking care of some business, union business. And, and uh, they called me up and they said, did you want to fight Ken Norton? I said, when? And they said, uh, next week. And I said, uh, send me a ticket. The guy said, you'll take the fight? I said, yeah, send me a ticket. Because I had a lot of problems legally with uh, union problems and indictments and stuff. So I wanted to get out of town for a while. Right. And that's, I, a, that's that other life we're talking about. And I trained about four or five days for the fight, and I gave him a terrible beating. And they uh, they called it a home. And it was a great fight. I mean, we people were standing. In the ninth round of that fight, people were standing on their chairs screaming and yelling so loud that when they rang the bell, nobody heard it. So they rang it three times before the referee finally separated us. And, and I was going back to my corner, and, and Kenny ran across the ring and hit me behind the head and drove me into the ring post, and the commissioner jumped up in the ring and said, you know, if you can't continue, you just won the fight. And I should have sat down and just took the win, but I was angry, so I I killed this guy. And then it dawned on me that I was in San Diego, and uh, it's his hometown, and they were trying to groom him for a title fight. So they they swiped the decision, but I won the city, and I won the crowd, so I stayed there, and I knocked out a half dozen people, and fought uh, Henry Clark, who nobody wanted to fight, from San Francisco, and beat him for the state title. And, uh, you know, <laughs> things just went on and on. It just, uh, had a couple great fights after that with Dan, with Alvin Blue Lewis and a few other fighters. Well, between your good. college and semi-pro days and your boxing days, um, you had lived a lifetime before you ever got a chance to even get into acting business. But you also mentioned a little earlier about another life that you had, so let, let's let's move into that because the uh, the project that you have out now, now is the this book that you were working on. It, it has been released, or it is about to be released. Oh yeah, no, it's been it's been out for like ten years. Yeah. Okay, and it's uh, family legacy, correct? Family legacy, correct. Tell tell if my you, listeners. If you go to if you go to familylegacythenovel.com. It takes you to Amazon. It takes you right to the book. Yeah. Now, tell my listeners, we were talking about this offset. You, uh, this was a Hollywood story that you were living. You just decided to put it on, on, you know, took a pen and put it on paper. So tell our listeners a little bit about the premise and the storyline for Family Legacy. Well, I, my father was a, was a very infamous gentleman from New York, Albert Anastasia. He, uh, he uh, was one of the, beginners of uh, of the mafia in, in New York. He was head of Murder Incorporated. And the, the Gambino family was his family, and Camp Carl Gambino was an underboss for him when they assassinated him in 1957 because he wouldn't go in the drug business. If you saw The Godfather where Brando's approach to go in the drug business, and he says no because if we touch it, uh, you know, our families will touch it, it'll be the downfall of the families. My father said that, and they, um, so, you know, they assassinated him in 57, and then they were sorry they did it because he was the glue that held them all together. And, uh, you know, it was just, Genovese was a very greedy man, and they, they they wanted the money that was involved in the drug business, and, but, you know, he said, this, this isn't what we signed up for, you know, it wasn't our, wasn't, isn't our deal, so. But he was a very infamous person, and, and a lot of things happened and changes in, and cities and stuff and uh, it was time to tell the truth about a lot of things so I sat down with some friends of mine and we decided that 
yeah, let's just sit down and, and put some stuff on paper and and, uh, and tell the truth how people were thrown. Around. You know, in the very beginning, you had government and industry, organized crime, and unions were all partners. You know, everybody, the, the income that these guys made in the beginning was through gambling and loan sharking and extortion and stuff. And if you didn't have money, how could you pay them? So they made sure that you went to work. They had. My father ran the waterfront. There was a lot of jobs there, and they were with the unions and construction and and everything else. So they they made sure people went to work and had jobs to do it. So they were helping helping to build the industry of of, of our country, you know. And uh, they never got no one ever looks at it that way. When they make mob pictures, they just do this this satirical mob stuff, and, uh, and there was a lot more to it than that. And of course, that changed a lot in the Kennedy era. And, uh, it was um, it was a different world, and, and it's been becoming a different world all the way down the street ever since. Right. So it's time to tell the truth about a lot of things that have went on in our society, and all. So I did, and the book tells the truth about a lot of forerunning things, and and it tells the truth about the Kennedy assassination. Well, that, that's definitely a story that needs to be told because there's so much uh, hysteria and hype and, and urban legend about what actually went on uh, in Dallas that day. I'm glad to hear that you have decided to put the real truth out. Now, this is... this is. Well, I was there. So, it's pretty hard for me. You know, it's pretty hard. Some people read books and tell stories about things that they hear, but when you're there and you live things, right. you know, the truth is the truth. And, uh, and I, you know, I... Uh, no, Jack Kennedy. It, it took it took them forty years before they ever told the truth about how many times he was shot. He was shot three times, not once. And Lee Harvey Oswald wasn't even in the building. He never pulled the trigger on any gun. He was a total patsy. So, understand? Yes, sir. I absolutely understand. I, listen, you, I, you know, the, the you know anything about rifles or about guns? Anybody who knows anything about rifles. The rifle that he was supposed to have shot Kennedy with was a mail-order, bolt-action rifle. Okay. Right. Now, you there? If you if you're if you're if you've ever shot a gun, you know to shoot a shot that is over a thousand feet, and you have you have wind barrier, you have the fact that a car is moving on a decline. You have trees and signs, and all these variables have to be taken into consideration. And any marksman will tell you, before you make a shot, you know, you have to arrest your heart because your pulse is in your finger. And you have to take your heart down to 60, and you have to get yourself prepared and take in all the variables. So when someone says that somebody took three shots with a bolt-action rifle in 28 seconds, that's total bullshit. Yeah, it's absolutely impossible. Fly. I've seen I've seen so many different shows that attack that theory. The you know because the, the huge conspiracy around it about how it played out, and there is absolutely no way with the weapon that he used that he could have squeezed off three rounds in twenty in less than thirty seconds. And it, uh, he would have been lucky to have, he would have been lucky to have hit anything, much less a person. That's exactly. Uh, especially, he wasn't that great a marksman. So, no, he, well, he you was, know, a, he you, was you a military. Be, you'd have to be a, a military shooter to even to make the one shot. You right. know? So, and then they tried to say it was a one bullet theory, and, and that he shot him and, and he hit him in the back of the head. Well, that's total bull because the first shot hit him in the throat. When you see Kennedy grab his throat, 
and he falls forward, and then you see him come flying backwards because the last shot, there was another shot that hit him in his lower back that no one talked about for 20 years. And the last shot was taken by the driver, Greer, who hit him in the very front of his head and, and threw him backwards. And you see the back of his head come out in the Zabruder footage. Right. Where Jackie was trying to, Jackie tried to climb out of the car after that because they, she thought they were going to kill her next. Right. So that's, the, you take, oh, for example, what kind of timeline does this book cover? Like how, how much time, uh, you know, how many years does, does this book that you, uh, that you wrote, how, how many years? Well, it goes back, it goes back to the, it starts at the beginning of, you know, different parts of, it flashes back and forth to different things and okay. opens the door up for the books that we're going to do and, and tell the story that we're going to tell. And it, it just, uh, lays the premise for a lot of things. You know, you can only put so much in one book. That's you know right. What I mean? That's right. That's why I was asking you earlier yeah, offset. You were talking about it. It goes from be... my father. In, in essence, it goes from my father's death into Kennedy's death. Okay. And the next book that comes out will go from Kennedy's death to Nixon's impeachment. And then from there, that will go from Nixon to, you know, we'll just go down the street and tell the story about how the country changed and things that changed in the country, you know. So you, you are writing a, an account of real American history. It's been a long time since somebody yeah. actually learned about real American history. Well, I know the I'll tell you a funny story. When, when, when I wrote the book, you know, I gave it, I took it and I gave it to four or five high school kids and, and gave it to them to read. And, and they, they went and they read it. And God, they came back to me and they said, how come no one's ever told us about this in history? How come we never learned any of this in school? Because they went to the library and they looked up the names and the people involved because in the book I have the right to use the real names of people, Meyer Lansky and Frank Costello and Charlie Luciana and and and, and, and I tell the truth about all of it. So it's uh, yeah, it's a lot of history involved. It's correct. And because you grew up in it, like you were part of it, um, it's it's an easy right for you because it's just you recounting your past. Exactly. And, I'm, and like I said, I am glad to hear that you are making this conscious effort to write real American history because, like I said, I don't know the last time that a young person was has been educated properly on actual U.S. history. Um, I know uh, it had they had begun to water it down when I went through high school, and I finished high school back in the 80s. So I can only imagine what a poor job of, of U.S. history is, is being done now because... Well, of you know, I, like you, you, you were raised in Mississippi? You raised down there? Is yes, that sir. You born raised born, that, born and raised. raised? Yes, sir. Okay. So if you talk to people, and I'm sure you have, you know, your parents and your grandparents, uh, life was a lot different when they were growing up, okay? When, when I was growing up in... Philadelphia, as a child, we never locked our front doors. Nobody ever came in your house. You know, people in the summertime used to lay out in the backyard because it was so hot and there wasn't air conditioning in those days. So they would put tenting around for mosquitoes and they would slept in the backyard because it was cool. Right. You know, and no one ever bothered anybody, you know. And the people, uh, children played. And when I was a boy, you know, we played in the streets from sun till sundown. You never went home. You're always out playing sports or, you know, playing games or whatever. Right. Uh, so it was a whole different, and there was no drive-by shootings. 
you know, there was no, uh, there was a lot of things. Neighborhoods were looked after better by the people who, like the Don of each neighborhood, took care of their neighborhoods. You, didn't, you, you wouldn't even think of committing a crime without somebody yelling at you. For yeah, they, you know they self-policed her. And then, you know, I can remember as when I grew as I was growing up, if we were at someone's house and, you know, visiting, playing, whatever we were doing, if we got out of line, there, my friend's parents disciplined us. I mean, they, I'm talking about oh, yeah. discipline. Oh, no. And listen, the, the my parents would have been pay, upset pay with you. missing in our society today. You know, the right. thing that's missing the most in our society is the word respect. That's exactly right. People don't respect themselves. So how do you expect them to respect anyone else? You understand? Right. When I was a boy, if you weren't, when dinner was served at 6 o'clock, you better be at the table. You better be sitting there. Yeah, I, I heard you say something about y'all playing. Families ate together and they looked each other in the eyeball. It was a whole different way of life. Yeah, I heard you say something about y'all played in the streets from daylight to dark. You knew when the street lights came on, you better be home. That's right. We were, we were the same way. <laughs> exactly if the true. sun started going down and darkness caught us coming home, we knew what kind of trouble we were going to be in. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so, I, I, I'm going to be honest. I am absolutely excited. Uh, until I actually spoke to you uh, a few weeks ago now, um, I had no idea that this book or this series that you're working on even existed. Uh, I've, I've done some, some research on it since then. I am absolutely going to go out and buy a copy of this. I can't wait. And I hope I can stay on track as you continue to build this series because I want to read every syllable of every one of these books that you're writing because from just from the reviews and some information I've gathered on it, this first book is absolutely amazing. And I know I want it to be part of my library at home. So when when is the... You said it's going to be part of a series. When is the next book scheduled to be released? Uh, probably within about six, within six months. Okay. And, we'll and then, then it'll be there'll be one every six months for the next uh, couple of years because we've already gotten ready to do the first movie. So we'll do one movie after the other. Then we're going to do a a series, a television series, which will, which is going to be unbelievable because it'll it'll make. Boardwalk Empire and Sopranos look like a little boys game. That's what I was about to ask you because we were talking about this. This is a Hollywood story that you took pen and put on paper and I knew that there had to be a movie deal or a television deal connected to it because this is too good not to be on the screen. So um, Now when was when will the the movie? You said the the first movie was coming out. We're in the process of of starting it, you know, we ha- we're in pre-production with the first one, but until this dilemma happened where nobody can go out of their house, right, you know? right. so now, put a halt to put there, a halt to a lot of things. But uh, this will be over pretty soon. This won't be, uh, right, I would say, right. another month maybe. So you guys are planning on producing a movie for every book of the series. Is that is that how it's going to work? Oh yeah, absolutely. Yep. Well, I tell you what, when and then we'll have a series. You'll know, we'll have a, a television series that'll even cover more, more, more area because you can only do so much in each film. You can, you know, you got two hours to to tell a story. But if you're doing a television series, you can get behind the curtain and really go into depth each city and everything. You know, and there's some great stories about Mississippi. Trust me. 
Oh, <laughs> trust me. I know. I know a lot of stories about this great state that I live in. Uh, we get a bad rap about a lot of stuff that's gone on in our past, but uh, you know, we wouldn't be the state we are without those stories. And that's what I keep trying to tell that's everybody. True. It does not matter what your story is. People need to hear your story. Doesn't matter if it's that's a good exactly story right. or a bad story. People need to hear it because they are able, somebody's going to hear what we're talking about today and it's going to take them back to that time, back to what we were just talking about, uh, back to the time when you were uh, a boxer, back when you were acting, you know, or now this storyline that you've established with this series of books you're writing. It's going to take them back. And that's like we were talking about a few minutes ago, a simpler time. I wish we could go back to a simpler time. I, it'll never happen, but I can always wish for it, though. Yeah, that's true. You know, there's no doubt about it. I mean, everything, you know, it's like it's like this, what's going on right now. You know, our, our, our country is such a great country. And, you know, we've been through the AIDS dilemma. We've been through Amtrak to 9-11. You know, but nothing ever shut anything down like this. So there's more of a backstory to this than what they're telling people. Right. right. And if you look at, at how many people have actually recovered already from the cannabis from this 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 virus, and, and yes, it has killed people, and yes, it's not a, a healthy situation. But they're going to extremes, I think. You know, but uh, I mean, if you look at the AIDS situation, there's 38 million people that died from AIDS. 38 million, you know, and there's 30 some million people walking around with HIV still, but they came up with something that curtailed it. And it's 99% foolproof that it, it, that it releases the AIDS virus from people. And AIDS was another virus against the immune system. And it was man-made right here in America. Yep. And people, and it took a long time before the truth came out. And it took a long time before they did anything about it. But remember, if you go back and, and you were only a baby when, when AIDS first came out, and, you know, people were so fearful. You, 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 people thought that if you touched somebody or shook hands with somebody, you would catch it. But before they come out with the truth about it, that it was blood on blood is the only way you could ever contract it. You know, and there's people that, but they were, people weren't supposed to go around people. They weren't, people with AIDS weren't supposed to go in stores or, or anything. You know, but so all these controversial deals that go on, you know, there's always some backlock story for it. And the truth about this will come out. Yeah, but to shut down a whole world because of something has got to be something more, much more involved than just a virus. That's true. I mean, I I can't argue anything you just said. I, I can't remember. And I wish I was a child when the AIDS epidemic exploded. I was, and I actually was in high school or maybe in early college when it actually kind of ramped up. But uh, I remember what hysteria was associated with it, the fear. Just like with corona that we're dealing with now. It's the fear is doing more damage to people than the actual virus itself because people are Absolute. terrified Absolute. that they're going to get it. Like I told, like I Absolute. tell people all the time, you could get hit by a bus or you could get hit by a train or you could get struck by lightning or you could get coronavirus. That's that's just how it is. Every morning you wake up, you take a chance of something happening to you. That's, that's, that's life in the big city, you know? That's true. <laughs> it's, uh, 
just how you take care of yourself and maintain yourself is the most important thing of all. I mean, you know, it's just uh, uh, to, to, to put this kind of fear in people is really, to me, diabolical. But you know, they're going to do what they're going to do, and it's, uh, it's just I, I, I'm waiting to see what the punchline is. Right. So, we you said when when this whole Corona thing's over and y'all get you guys get back to as normal as normal it can be in the in the industry um what kind of time we're looking at six months or so you're in pre-production now yeah it'll be about about six to six months probably yeah. you know the film will probably come out in 21 21 okay, six months 2021 okay so here's, yeah. what, here's what we'll do just before the movie's released i'll get back in touch with you and if you're not too busy we'll bring you back on the show and we'll talk about the movie um inspired by this amazing book you wrote how does that sound? Absolutely. Outstanding. That sounds like a winner to me. I, like I said, I can't wait to run out and get it as part of my library, and I can't wait. Now that I know what the time frame on these new editions of the series are, I'm going to keep an eye out for those also. Um, and like I said, the movie, the TV series, I, I would watch the TV series every time it came on, so I definitely uh, want to stay in touch with you and keep updated on when the TV series actually gets up and running. So... Um, Okay. Like I said, I, you have had quite a life. Uh, you've had a few lives, uh, and like I said, you. Uh, I'm glad to see that um, even after a sports career and after an acting career, that's um, we can fairly say your acting career is in its twilight. But you're not done acting yet. Now you've shifted gears. Nope. Now you're shifted gears. You're an author, so now you're an established author. Uh, you're going to be a filmmaker. You're going to be a, a TV producer. I mean, you, you got all kind of credits you're adding to your life. So um, I cannot wait to catch up with you down the road. And, uh, you know, when we get the update on the movie and the TV series. Um, well, you, you know what they say down south. Y'all come back and see us real soon right. now. You y'all hear come, me? Y'all come back now. You hear? That's exactly right. That's <laughs> that's uh, that's actually pretty funny, you know, that... that uh, the Beverly Hillbillies made that, that phrase famous, and I, to be honest with you, I'd never heard that, and I've lived in the Deep South my whole life. I'd never, never actually heard that term. I'd never heard that term until I watched an episode of the Beverly Hillbillies. So, I so, tell you where it's more, more where where it really is is said a lot more is like in Georgia or the Carolinas. You know, I've been through the whole South, so I you know. Okay. But I have friends of mine down in Louisiana, and they say to me, "Who made that say up?" Yeah. <laughs> I, well, I said to a guy one time, I said, y'all come back and see us real soon. The guy looked at me like, what? Where'd you get that from? Yeah. Look, Louisiana. <laughs> well, Louisiana is a... The Oklahomans a, really say it a lot, too. Y'all come back and see us real soon, boy. You hear me? Yeah, now, now Louisiana, <laughs> that's a whole different country. They, they, they're not even part of the U.S., I don't think. <laughs> they're, they're so different, so... <laughs> So anyway, uh, Jack, before I get off the phone with you, go, tell my listeners how they can find the book, how they can keep up with you with the production of the movie and the and the TV series, uh, and like I said, just to follow you in general. How, how can they do all that? Well, if you go to, there's a site called FamilyLegacyTheNovel.com that, that, that has a lot of information on it. Or, you know, it's just, just simple Google me. I mean, I guess I'm all over the place in the Google. You just, you can't get away with anything anymore. That's true. That's true. Uh, yeah. I tell people all the time, thank the Lord that Al Gore hadn't invented the internet when I was a youngster or I'd be all over Google right now. 
<laughs> I, sir, I can't thank you enough for the time you took today to talk to me. Uh, my listeners, I know are gonna, I have a lot of listeners that fall in the same age demographic that I do. So the minute they hear you start talking about the yesteryear days, they're going to be super excited. And I know everybody that I've got listening is going to be excited to not only go out and buy your book series, but also catch the movies that you're making and the television series. So, like I said, I can't thank you enough for taking time today. My pleasure, for sure. You take care, man. And I'll catch up with you uh, uh, as soon as I get an update about the uh, movie. We'll get you back on, okay? You got it. Have a great day, sir. So do you. Take care. All right, man. And as always, guys, Wally, out.